0: As disciples of Jesus, there are issues with the Bible we have to learn to deal with. Uh, these issues are, are often what I call I've called divine tensions. But a divine tension is where two biblical truths seem to be contrary to one another, but can't be because they're from the Bible. So for instance, God is forgiving and will forgive any and all sin, but He's also just and will absolutely punish Every sin that can seem like those two things are are at odds with one or that both cannot be true or disciples of Jesus are called on to separate ourselves from what is unclean. But we are also called to go into the world and make disciples of all nations that can seem at times to be contradictory. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But we must deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily in order to follow Jesus. We're dead to sin and we have no obligation to do what our sinful nature desires. And yet, we still struggle against the pull of our sinful nature. God knows all of our needs before we ask Him. And yet, we have not because we ask not. And one more is, God is our shield and protector but we will and we do experience trials and tribulations. Now, there are a lot more, but you kind of get the idea of what I'm talking about. Now, with each divine tension, there is a proper way to respond or to resolve the tension. And as disciples of Jesus, we do have to wrestle with scripture and with prayer until we find that proper resolution. Tonight, we're going to look at one of those. How can we have trials and tribulations if God is our shield and Defender, right? That's a resolution we're going to try to have tonight. So, open your Bible to Psalm three, page four hundred and fourteen in your pew Bible. And when you uh, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. David writing says, "Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me." Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. I laid me down and slept. I awakened, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousand people that have set themselves against me round about me. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God." For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheek. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth to the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. title of the message tonight is, The Lord is my shield. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that you are our shield and our defender. You are the one who helps us in our time of need. And while this is true, we also live in a world where sin and... Hardship abounds and often abounds into our lives. So Father, we need to be able to recognize the tension that's there and we need to be able to understand the tension. So when trials come into our lives, our faith is not shaken. We understand what it means that You are our shield, that we understand You are there, You are active, and You are involved. Father, tonight as we open up this beautiful psalm, let our minds and our hearts be fully focused upon You. Help us to, in this moment, to lay aside the cares of life we may have brought in and just be here, be present with this. Let Your Spirit come, take the Word, make it living and active in our life to strengthen us if we're weak, to encourage us if we're discouraged, to, to convict us if we need to be convicted, to just work in our lives and draw us ever closer to Christ. Fill me tonight with Your Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech to speak Your words in Your ways for Your glory. We ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now Psalm 3 has a feature. The, the first two psalms we've looked at does not have. And that is a historical reference. We're told at the stop... <coughs> I don't have the roan. I just sucked a bug down my throat. <coughs> uh, we're told at the top of the psalm that it's a, a psalm of David... When he fled from Absalom, his son. Now that tells us actually a whole lot about what was going on at the time David wrote this psalm. If you're familiar with the story, and this was just recently a part of my daily Bible reading. Uh, In fact, it just resolved itself today in my Bible reading today. But if you know the story of Absalom, Absalom has a sister who is raped by his half-brother. Absalom hates his half-brother for raping his sister, and he plots for a period of time on a way to kill him. The time comes, he has a party, he invites his brother, and he has his men rise up and kill him. Then because he's afraid David is going to kill him for killing his brother, he flees to his grandfather, who is a king of another nation. After a period of time, Joab arranges for David to call Absalom back. David calls Absalom back, but he doesn't let Absalom come into his presence any longer. He has to stay in his land, in his house, in his place, away from the king. Joab and Absalom have a a meeting of the minds, and Absalom is brought to, to be kind of re reconciled to David. But all this time something has happened in Absalom. He's not really the faithful son he pretends to be any longer. Now he's angry at his dad. He he is vengeful toward his dad. He's bitter at his dad. And so he begins to plot and scheme against his dad. He he starts standing outside the city gates, and as people come in, he he asks them why they're coming into the city. What what is your case that you would like to bring before the king? And and as the people tell him, he he says, Man, you have a, a great case. It's a shame. The king won't hear you. It's a shame there's no one to go before the king on your behalf. And here he is. He's the the prince. And when these commoners come up, he bows before them. And and all this while he is stealing their hearts away. They're beginning to think, man, Absalom would be a better king than David. And after a little while of doing that, of of swaying the hearts of the people, Absalom is Gets together his own army. He gets together his own counselor. He goes to Hebron and he has himself anointed as king. And they blow trumpets and they shout, Absalom is king. Well, David hears about this and he flees the city. And the, the, the whole rebellion goes on for a couple of chapters until Absalom is killed and the rebellion is crushed. So this psalm is written sometime from the beginning of it where Absalom declares himself king to where Absalom is caught in the trees and he is murdered by Joab. Now my take, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly when it was written, but if I look at the end of this, David speaks of God going to save him and of God being the one who brings salvation. But to me he speaks of it in a... This is what will happen sort of way. And I say this for a couple of reasons. One, there's no specifics about how this situation was resolved in this passage. right It's just, "God will defend me, God will save me, God is for me," is kind of what David says. Secondly, if you're familiar with the story, you know that when Absalom is killed, David had asked the generals, "Be gentle with the boy Joab or the boy Absalom, for my sake. And Joab kills him anyway. And when David finds out his son is dead, he doesn't rejoice like it kind of pictures it here. Instead, David weeps and he wails, my son, my son, oh Absalom, my son. So I believe this was written early in the rebellion. Like maybe the first night or the first day or two after he's had to flee from Jerusalem. So this isn't David saying, God has saved me. This is David saying, I'm confident God will deliver me. Now in this psalm we do see the tension I mentioned earlier. David is going through a significant trial in his life. David is also confident in saying God is his shield and his defender. So the tension is can come because we wonder, if God is my shield, shouldn't this mean He protects me from the trials and from the conflict? And the answer, possibly surprisingly, is no. Absolutely nowhere in Scripture are we promised God will protect us from trials. Instead, what we find as the consistent testimony of Scripture is God protects us in trials, but not from the trials. So as disciples of Jesus, the main truth we need to understand tonight is this. Jesus protects us in the trials, but not from the trials. Jesus protects us in the trials, but not from the trials. So with this thought in our minds, I want to point out four truths from Psalm 3 to help us understand Jesus protecting us in the trials, but not from them. Number one is trials are inevitable. This is, to me, a crucial point for us to understand. Trials are inevitable. Now notice what David says. Lord, how they are increased that trouble me. Many are they that rise up against me. Now, if you're familiar with the story again, the longer Absalom's rebellion went on, the more followers he gained. By the time the armies amassed to fight, Absalom had declared himself king. The army of Israel, essentially the whole army of Israel had taken Absalom's side. One of David's counselors, Ahithophel, uh, had taken Absalom's side, and the common people were all on Absalom's side. So much so that when David fled and was going out, a, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, who was a descendant or was a part of the house of Saul, he he felt confident enough In his position, in David's fall from grace, to stand on the riverbank opposite of David and shout curses at him and to throw dirt at him. Significant insults. And he felt confident because David had fallen from favor in his his way of thinking. They had all risen up against David. The longer it went on, the more people seemed to turn against him. Now we see in verse 2... What they were saying, there are many between many there be which say of my soul, there be no help for him in God. They were basically saying God had abandoned David and wouldn't help him any longer. But right? the, the man that, that cursed David on the riverbank basically said, this trial was proof of David's iniquity against the house of Saul. David was sinful and wrong, and how he rebelled against Saul and had taken his place. This was God's judgment. Others were saying that clearly, had David been doing what he was supposed to be doing and living as he was supposed to be living, this kind of trial wouldn't be happening. They were saying things like God had given up on David and wouldn't help him this time. They were saying God had taken his hand of blessing off of David's kingship. And so David might as well just leave forever and let Absalom remain king. Now, you can see how it might seem that way. When your own son rises up against you after killing his brother because his brother raped your daughter, surely all of those things combined, it would look like David is in a mess. Like surely... David is in sin and iniquity and God has taken His hand from him. And this is all David's fault. So are these statements true? Was this trial God's way of saying He wasn't pleased with David? Was this trial God's way of saying He had given up on David? Was this trial God's way of saying David's time was over and it was time to quit? Absolutely not. This was not at all what it was saying instead what it was saying is conflict hardship and trials will come into all of our lives and there are no exceptions to this truth you can be right in the center of God's will you can be doing exactly what God wants you to do in exactly the way God wants it done and trials and hardships and conflicts will still come into your life. Because trials, hardships, and conflicts are an inevitable part of living in a sin-cursed world where bad things abound. Trials, tribulations, and conflicts are inevitable if we are wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. And trials and hardships, conflicts are inevitable if we are in wholehearted rebellion Against Jesus. Now the rebellion against Jesus. We we tend to understand that. But still in our minds we often think. If I'm doing God's will. Then I won't have these problems. And if I'm having these problems. It's because I'm not in God's will. So what I want to do is. I want to take some time this evening. And I want to show you. You can be doing exactly what God wants done. And the way God wants it done. And still experience terrible Hardship. So turn with me to Acts 16, uh, page 845. We're going to start in verse 6. Now we're going to come back to Psalm 3 in a minute, but I just want to show you the, the this story and the way it happens, the way it unfolds. Acts 16. The Apostle Paul seeking to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. In verse 6 it says, Now when we had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. And after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. So here's what you find. The Apostle Paul and his companions, they're just like, we need to go somewhere and preach the gospel. Let's Let's go to Asia. And the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't go there. So they say, okay, well, we'll go to Bithynia. And the Holy Spirit says, no, you're not going to go there. So they came to Troas. And as they waited in Troy, as they went to sleep, trying to figure out what to do. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man in Macedonia and praying, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. So Paul is just trying to go. God says no, so he goes to sleep. God gives him a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here. He gets up, immediately goes where God wants him to go to preach the gospel. Verse 11. And as we were loosing from Troy, as we came to a straight course through Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake, to the women which were resorted thither. Hang on, where am I starting at here? Sorry, verse 16. Jump down to verse 16. That's where he meets Lydia. That's important, but not part of our story tonight. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, and brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, cried, saying, These men be servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this she did many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Now, Paul goes where God wants him to go. He goes to to Macedonia. He comes to Philippi. He sees a girl possessed by an evil spirit who follows them around and says these things. Now, Paul, being a servant of the Most High God, he sets that woman free from demon possession, clearly a part of what Jesus would have him to do because that was part of the ministry of Jesus Himself. So Paul is where God wants him to do. He's doing what God wants him to do, and he's even doing it in the way God wants it done. So what is the result of this? And when our masters saw the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas, drew them into the marketplace, unto the rulers, and they brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city, and question customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes, and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now they were beaten with many stripes. Now, with the Romans, there's no telling how many that meant. Like the Jews, I was reading in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 today, and Paul talks about from the Jews he received 40 stripes minus 1. So 39 was the most you could give a Jew from a Jew. The Romans didn't have that. So how many straps was they, were they beaten? We don't know. Probably almost to death. Right, This wasn't a, a little thing. Right, I think so often our picture of stuff like this is so minor. We've, we've maybe seen these PG movies where they took a little stick and they kind of hit them and there was a little strip of blood across the back. But that's not the way it would have been. If they had beaten Paul with rods... Like they typically do, there probably would have been bones broken. There would have been blood pouring. There would have been muscle exposed. He was—we're talking—beaten almost to death at this point. Cast into prison, their feet made stop, made fast in the stocks. This was not a comfortable way to be. So they are doing exactly what God wanted him to do. They went where God wanted them to go. They did the way God wanted it done, and the result was they were falsely accused, thrown into prison, and beaten within an inch of their life. And then, not their, their wounds weren't dressed, they weren't taken care of, and they were just put in the innermost part of the prison. So what do we do when we find them at this point? How are they responding to this? Verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed, saying praises to God, and the prisoners heard them. Paul and Silas didn't take this trial, go ahead and turn back to Psalm 3. Paul and Silas didn't take this trial, this tribulation, this this conflict, as God's way of saying, stop, preach the gospel. They didn't take it as God saying He didn't want them to do this. They, They understood. They were doing what God wanted done. They were doing it the way God wanted it to be done. They understood Jesus didn't necessarily promise to protect them from the trials. But Jesus had promised to protect them in the trials. Trials of life are an inevitable part of life. And here's what we often miss, especially if we're trying to do the will of God. Trying to do exactly what God wants done is not the way to free ourselves from trials. It is almost a guaranteed way to expose ourselves to them because the world, the flesh, and the devil will without doubt fight against us in trying to do the will of God. We have to get this. Trials are inevitable. If we believe Jesus is supposed to protect us from trials and not in trials, if we believe Jesus's plan is to make our lives easy and not hard. If we believe serving Jesus will always be the smooth, easy path with no bumps, no difficulties, no hardships, we will never faithfully serve Jesus. And we will probably not make it as disciples of Jesus. We won't make it serving Jesus because we will quit when it gets hard and make no mistake it always gets hard and we probably won't make it as disciples of Jesus because when it gets hard and when we quit we'll get discouraged and disillusioned with Jesus and our perceived or his perceived failures to protect us from trials and hardships and conflicts all the while, Jesus has never promised to protect us from trials and hardships and conflict. Rather, he has promised to protect us in the trials and in the conflicts. Jesus protects us in trials and not from trials. We have to know that. Trials are inevitable. Secondly, trials remind us of our need. For Jesus. Verse 3. David immediately turns to God for help. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me and my glory and the lifter up of mine head. Now, what I like about this, what I think is important to notice, is David doesn't immediately cry out to God for help. Now, he does in the next verse, and we'll talk about that. But David's first thing to do in the midst of a trial and a conflict and a hardship is to pray and praise God. He starts by stating his confidence in God. Now, this may seem like a small thing, but I don't think it is. I think it is significant. Because again, think about the situation. David's own son has rebelled against him and is seeking to kill him. Some of his own friends, his close friends, have turned against him. The people and the army who once thought he was the greatest thing ever have decided they like the usurping son better than David. And David's first turn to God is in saying, God, I still trust you. I still believe you're great, you're awesome, and you're worthy of my praise and worthy of my devotion. This trial and this betrayal has not shaken David's confidence in God and God as his shield. This trial hasn't shaken David's confidence in God's work in his life. This trial hasn't shaken his conf- David's confidence. God will take care of him. God is his shield, he says. Of course, the shield is used for protection. God had protected David all of his life. Pretty much, David's story is one of God protecting him and delivering him in the midst of battles so David could become the king. This trial had not changed David's perspective on who God was or what God was like. But he also calls God His glory. Now this is a way of saying what He is glorying in is God. Again, think about the significance of this. David at this point has lost his home. He has lost his kingdom. And he may end up losing his life. But... He still has God. And as far as David is concerned, that is the best thing ever. David may have lost his worldly possessions, but as long as God was with him, that's all that was really important. The only thing in his life which really mattered and which was really worth glorying in was God. And God was still with him despite this trial. And then he says God is the lifter Of his head. God would lift up his head. Again I think that's a significant turn of phrase. Because of the story. David left with his head hung low. But David knew he wouldn't always stay with his head hung low. He would at some point. Have his head raised again. And it would be God. Who would cause him. And make a way for him to hold his head high. And hold it up in joy. David knew. David's the one that penned the 23rd Psalm. He knew the God who led him through the dark valley of the shadow of death would also lead him to the mountaintop where there were streams of water. David's eyes of faith saw what his natural eyes could not. He saw what God was going to be in this time. Now we see in verse 4, David cried out to the Lord with his voice. The word cried as it's used here, it means repeated action or habit. So David didn't just cry out once and then move on with his life. David cried out to God and cried out to God and cried out to God. He, he cried out until he knew God heard him. And eventually it says at the end of verse 4, he knew God heard him. So trials remind us of our need for Jesus. Here is a probably something you, you might want to write down or remember. God will never give us a life that makes Him unnecessary. Right? God will never give us a life that makes Him unnecessary. One of the reasons Jesus may allow or even send troubles and trials into our life is to remind us we desperately need Him. Now trials also cause us to, to question what really matters in our life. There's a, when, when the world around us gets bad, it tends to clarify what is ultimate and what truly matters. We see this with David. David had lost everything of any sort of worldly or monetary value. I mean, so much so that somebody else had to bring them food. When they left Jerusalem, they basically left with the clothes on their backs and the animals they were riding and what they could carry in a pack. In the midst of losing everything, David says God is his shield and his glory. David, in this trial, was forced to evaluate his life and he realized what was ultimate, what mattered, was God. And God was still with him. Though he had lost it all and had no certainty he was going to get it back, he had God, and that's all that ultimately mattered. Now, if any of you have ever seen, it's an older movie called The Jerk with Steve Martin. It's an old movie. I think I was probably eight or nine when it came out, so it's a long time ago. But if you know, there's this, if you've seen it, if you haven't, there's a scene where, where Steve Martin goes from being poor to being extravagantly wealthy, to suddenly being poor all over again. And in this moment where he, he loses everything, See, Martin says, it doesn't matter. I don't need all this stuff. He says, all, all I need is, is this lamp, and he grabs this lamp. And so I don't need anything else. All I need is this lamp and, and this chair. And that's all I need. All I need is this lamp and this chair and this over here. And he just goes through a period where he's saying with his mouth, he doesn't need anything. He has everything he needs. But with his actions, he's declaring he needs all of this stuff. But he is revealing what truly matters to him. And it's easy for us to do something similar. We say we know we need Jesus And we say we are relying on Jesus. Yet the lives we live often tell a very different story. It's not so much that we reject Jesus or even live in sinful rebellion. It's just that we have all of this other stuff. And it draws our attention away from Him. It, it beeps and it bops and it demands we look and we pay attention. And so we, we neglect Jesus for all of this other stuff. And if asked, we would say, Jesus is far more important than this. But with our lives, with our lives we show something vastly different. We show this stuff is what is ultimate to us. And then, everything is taken away. In a moment, the world changes. And things start to fall apart. And there's a moment of clarity. And we realize, this is junk. This doesn't matter. Truly, I need Jesus. I'm not in control, but Jesus is. I, I am small and, and finite, but He is great An infinite, I am desperately in need of Him. We would be foolish to think Jesus doesn't have a hand in doing that in our lives. We would be foolish to think He doesn't have a hand in creating circumstances that cause us to realize this junk is junk and what we really need is Him above all else. Jesus does not promise to protect us from trials because He will never give us a life where we do not need Him daily, moment by moment. But He does promise to protect us in the trials. So we are constantly reminded we need Him. Thirdly, Jesus gives us peace during the trial. Verse 5 David says, I laid down and slept. Again, that may not seem like a a massive thing, but if you've ever been in a massive trial or had an enormous betrayal in your life, you know, sleep isn't always the easiest thing to come by. His enemies are of his own household. Soon his mighty men will be fighting against the very army of Israel. He's had to flee his city to keep from dying. His world has just unraveled. And David lies down and he goes to sleep. But it's not the sleep here that is talking about of exhaustion or of giving up or of resignation. It's a sleep of peace. David's confidence in God gave him the peace necessary to sleep in the midst of the trial. He says, and I woke up for the Lord sustained me. I think the idea is... His enemies didn't catch him in the night and kill him because God had taken care of him. God had protected him in the night. In fact, if you read this story, you know that is indeed exactly what happened. God was the source of his peace. God is who David was trusting in. David had mighty warriors with him. David; These mighty warriors were men who were faithful to David and willing to die for David. Back in the day, David himself was a mighty warrior in his own right. But at this point in his life, David wasn't trusting in his warriors. David wasn't trusting in his own skill with a sword. His own cleverness. He was trusting in a God who gave him peace during the trial. A peace that enabled him to to lie down and to go to sleep. And a peace that protected him so that he woke up the next day. And he was unafraid. It says in verse 6, I will not be afraid of 10,000 people that have set themselves against me round about me. David had peace. The world was against him, but God was for him, and that's really all that mattered in David's life. Jesus has promised to give us peace. The Holy Spirit produces peace in our lives. And the peace Jesus gives, the peace the Holy Spirit produces, isn't dependent upon our circumstances. It is a peace greater than our circumstances. Right when we looked at Paul and Silas a few minutes ago, after their horrible beating and wrongful imprisonment, they were singing and praising God. Despite their circumstances, they were worshipping the Lord. They had peace. You know, the reality is, there is nothing particularly spectacular about having peace when everything in our life is exactly the way we think it ought to be. Anyone can have peace when everything is right in their world. There is, somehow, but there is, however, something amazing about being able to have peace when your world seems to be crumbling down around you. There's something spectacular about sitting in a Roman prison, waiting to find out if they're going to execute you. And when you write a letter to someone, you say, it doesn't really matter. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's spectacular. That's amazing. That sort of peace, it's not just for spiritual superheroes. It is a peace each and every Christian can and should have. Jesus said, These things have I spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Since Jesus is our source of peace, we should be able to have peace no matter what trials come into our life, no matter what issues attack us. And this peace is not an absence trials, It is a peace in the midst of trials. It is a peace trusting our God is in control. It is a peace trusting my Savior is with me and He has not forsaken me or abandoned me. When we have this peace, it demonstrates to a watching world the greatness of our Savior. The goodness of our God. And the worthiness of the one we are devoting our lives to. This is why Jesus gives us or protects us in the trials and not from the trials. And then finally, Jesus will deliver us. Now, as I said, when David brings the psalm to a close, it doesn't appear to me that the the trial is over. hasn't been resolved. David seems to be looking back at God's past deliverance and saying, what God has done in the past, God will do again. David expresses his Confidence in God who will arise and save him. Who will smite his enemies on the cheek. He expresses salvation belongs unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Essentially what David is saying. Is if God is for him. It really doesn't matter who is against him. God has delivered him in the past. And God will deliver him in this time. And then God will deliver him again in the future. And I think this is a powerful piece of encouragement we need. It is good to know Jesus will deliver us. That that is a a truth we have to cling to even in the midst of a trial. But as I thought about this, one of the questions I want to bring up because it's just a reality. Does Jesus always deliver us The way we think He's going to. The way we would like Him to. Right? We know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Of the three Hebrew young men who were tossed in the burning fiery furnace and walked out without so much as smelling like smoke. Those are great stories of God's deliverance. But does it always end like that? Look at what Paul said. My first answer, no one stood with me. All men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to the charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that, it, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that the Gentiles might hear. I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me to His heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. So here's Paul writing his last letter from a Roman prison, he expresses what God has done in the past all people had forsook him, but God stood with him, and he enabled him to to preach the gospel so the Gentiles would hear. God had delivered him from the mouth of the lion in the past, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work. This seems to express an, an expectation they are going to let him out of prison, and he will move on down the road preaching the gospel and planting churches as he had. But that is not what happened. Rather, Paul was taken from a prison cell out into a courtyard where he was made to bow down and they chopped off his head and ended his life. And he died a martyr as a 60-something-year-old man. So here's the questions we have to wrestle with. Was Paul wrong about Jesus going to deliver him? Did Jesus fail to deliver Paul? And the answer to both questions is no. Paul wasn't wrong and Jesus didn't fail. Jesus always delivers us, but not always in the way we think He should. He delivers us in the way He knows is best and the way which will bring Him the most glory. In this case, Paul was not delivered from the sword, but Paul was delivered by the sword. Right? When Paul was beheaded... He was delivered from this life and all the hardships he faced. He was no longer in prison. He was no longer being tortured. The things people said about him no longer mattered. His thorn in the flesh was no longer an issue. All of the aches and the pains the man must have had after a lifetime of hardships in the name of Jesus were all gone instantly. And when Paul stood before Jesus, he didn't think he had been shortchanged in his life. As Paul stood before Jesus, he didn't say, what? You're kidding, right? I thought I was going to get out of prison. He didn't feel Jesus had let him down at all. To turn quickly, and I know we're short on time, but I want to show you this. Turn to Hebrews 11, verse 33. And this is the end Hebrews 11, verse 33, talks about people who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, uh, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in the fight, Turned the the flight of the armies into aliens. And women received their dead to life again. This is when we say Jesus delivers us. This is what we expect. This is the picture we have. Yes. This is the stuff of summer action. Box office smashes. And if it stopped there. We would think that's always the way. It's supposed to be. But notice. What it goes on to say. And others. Were Tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had a trial of cruel mocking and scourging, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, and they were sawn asunder, were tempted, slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains, dens and in caves of the earth. Again, a temptation might be to say, well, okay, these first people who waxed valiant and quenched the violence of fire, these were the ones who truly had faith and so they saw these great victories and those others were were lesser. But look at what it goes on to say again. And these all, who are these all? Those who quenched the violence of the fire and those who were tortured and had the trial of cruel mockings. Obtained a good report through faith, received not the promises. Why? They were all faithful. They were all believers. They were all doing exactly what God wanted done, and yet some put to flight the bad guys and won great victories, and others died miserably, painfully, and badly. Why? Why did some escape? and when and others die badly? Why did Peter get out of prison, and John be murdered in prison? Why did Paul get delivered from the mouths of lions all those other times, but have his head cut off this time? And the answer is, I just don't know. I just don't know. But what I do know is this. Just as Paul did not think Jesus had failed him, those people in Hebrews 11 did not think God had failed them. They did not stand before the great and glorious God they served right up to the moment of their death and say, you should have delivered me differently. I am so disappointed, I'm in heaven with you now. They knew they had been delivered. Just not in the way they may be imagined. As Paul said, delivered from every evil work, preserved into His heavenly kingdom. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I think it's a reminder, our ultimate deliverance never comes in this life. Ever. There is a heavenly kingdom coming. And that is where our ultimate deliverance comes from. And I guess what it comes down to for us is this. God will deliver us in this life so long as He has work for us to do. But when our work on earth is done, God will then deliver us from this life where we will be with Him for eternity. And the question, the big question we have to answer is this. Is the way Jesus chooses to deliver us good enough? Even if it's not not the way we want to be delivered. Jesus's deliverance for us is through the sword, by the sword, rather than from the sword. Is that going to be okay? Is it going to be okay... If Jesus chooses, rather than take away our thorn in the flesh, but to give us grace that is sufficient to endure that time, will that be okay? If Jesus chooses just to sustain us in the midst of terrible suffering and not deliver us out of the face of the terrible suffering, is that going to be okay? Is the way Jesus chooses to deliver us, is it going to be okay if it's not the way we would choose to be delivered? And I don't know that we could accurately answer that question right now. Because we all know what the answer is supposed to be, right? It's the Sunday school answer. Well, of course it would be okay. Jesus is enough. He's my glory. And that's easy enough to say when, when life is fine. But it is something we need to be prepared for. Because all of us, at times, we will face suffering and hardship, conflicts and trials. And all of those are true. The trial, it's inevitable. That's going to constantly remind us that we need Jesus. Jesus will give us peace in the midst of that trial and He will deliver us, but the way He delivers us may not be our preferred method of deliverance. And we're going to have to come to the place where we say, Your will be done. Because Jesus protects us in the trial, but not from the trial. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion and lord we need you to strengthen us and encourage us and speak to us from your word and make us to be strong in you and in the power of your might to be strong in the scripture to be strong in your grace cuz lord it it just looks like difficult days are coming And you've not promised to protect us from those difficult days that are coming. You've promised us you'll be with us. You've promised us to give us peace. You've promised us that we would see our need for you and you'd be there for us. And you've promised us to deliver us. Lord, we know from Scripture that deliverance isn't always in the way that we would prefer. We must be strong in You and Your grace and in Your Spirit and in Your Word so that whatever Your will would be, we would say like the Apostle Paul, to live as Christ, to die as gain, we win either way because we are with You. Make us to be deep disciples, fully devoted to doing Your will, no matter what. Guide us, give us wisdom in the days and the weeks ahead on how to do what You'd want done. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Right, we're dismissed.